Blog Talk Radio. Throughout history, man has seen large hairy bipeds stalking the forests and canyons of the world. What is it that has captured the fear and excitement of so many people? Is it the boogeyman? Or more likely, an undiscovered species habitating our remote, remote wilderness? Join us now for our quest into the mystery of the Sasquatch, also known as Bigfoot. Welcome to Squatch Detective Radio. Cyberspace, welcome to Squatch Detective Radio for today's date, Sunday, February 27th, 2011. I am your host, your guide, the Squatch Detective, Steve Coles, back from the lovely British Isles, and uh, along with my trusty companion and co-host, a man who I owe much thanks for taking the show over for a couple of weeks along, and another thanks to Mr. Billy Willard as well for sitting in the second seat, uh, my good buddy, Chris Bennett. How are you tonight, Chris? Hey, Steve, going good in Kentucky, and welcome back to the U.S., bud. Oh, thank you, man. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You didn't, first convert, over, you didn't uh, convert over to being a tea drinker, did you? No. In fact, I was kind of surprised most of the most of everybody there was, you know, in the morning, coffee, coffee, coffee. Coffee. So, wow. Coffee. And uh, but their 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 uh, their coffee over there has a kick, man. <laughs> I had a I had every morning I had to shave my tongue. Uh, <laughs> oh, pretty thick stuff, huh? <laughs> no, pretty strong. I don't know about thick, but it was strong. <laughs> yeah. But um, so, so did you uh, learn how to play the bagpipes or anything while you were <laughs> Well, I gotta tell you, where we were staying, we actually had a set of bagpipes there. And so I decided I was going to pick it up, and the first thing it did was fall apart. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, my you destroyed the bagpipes. There was probably some priceless object, you know, worth about $10 million. <laughs> oh, good Lord. But, you know, but i got to say, uh, I, I, w- I want to thank everybody on the uh uh, the Nat Geo crew and the uh, Zigzag Productions and uh, Mike, Anna, Jay, and Sandy. Uh, I want to thank all of those guys for a, a great time and a great shoot. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing the product. It should be out in three or four months. Uh, it'll be uh, it's their uh, Nat Geo's Truth Behind series. Uh, it's going to be Truth Behind the Loch Ness Monster. And uh, and I also want to say hello to uh, my good buddy out there, uh, if he catches the show, uh, Miko Takala. Um, uh, just a great guy, a researcher I met while I was out there, and uh, we're keeping in contact, even though we're divided by an ocean. So, uh, great time. Oh, cool. Great. Good deal. Hi, Miko. 
Well, Steve, I, I understand you're kind of like under like a non-disclosure thing about telling us exactly what happens on the episode, but can you tell us a, a little bit? I mean, what, what was the weather like? Was it cold or well, uh, I'm not really under uh, per se a non-disclosure. I, you know, it's just professional courtesy. I don't want to give away anything about right. the actual show itself. I can say that we uh, we did employ some divers. We did employ some uh, one of the latest uh, uh, leading edge military grade uh, sonar technologies uh, called oh, wow. the uh, the Didson sonar, which is a dual frequency sonar. It's kind of almost looking like uh, using a thermal imager underwater, almost. Really interesting oh, cool. stuff, and um, we we also employed a polygrapher or uh, basically somebody to administer a lie detector test. Uh, the guy's gentleman's name is uh, David Bird, one of the top guys in the world uh, that administers polygraphs, and uh, he had spent 26 years at Scotland Yard. So quite quite an incredible individual, and uh, I got to say, it, you know, the people on the show were just top notch. So uh, moving forward, it should be a wonderful. But the weather, <clears throat> well, that's funny because it changed there about every hour. Um, it's one of the strange <laughs> places. The wind blows out of the east one hour, blows out of the west another hour. Um, it can be you can wake up, it was forty degrees, and then an hour later it could be back. It could be like thirty-three degrees and very windy and cold with a bitter wind, and then an hour later it could be back to being warm again and sunny. So uh, right. as they say there, they don't have climate in Scotland; they have weather. So we have a, a question from uh, the Shadow three fifteen in the chat. He wants to know: Did you eat a haggis? Uh, yes, I did. Uh, you did. I did. <laughs> I absolutely did. And uh, strangely, I liked it. It was uh, quite tasty, even though. Um, um, and there's some also discussion about them letting me through customs. They most certainly let me yeah. through customs. <laughs> I think that, that was Steve at Bigfoot Book. Steve, I think they they had to sneak him in, man. <laughs> well, I, and much to my surprise, uh, the the UK actually gave me a six month visa. <laughs> so all right, but uh, so that means if uh, you know uh, the Americans want to deport me, I have some place I can go for at least a few more months. So <laughs> <laughs> it's always nice to have a backup plan, you know. That's and, <laughs> But uh, anyway, uh, Chris, I'll, I'll pass it off to you if you have no further questions, and we'll uh, we'll pop it on over to our guest. So I'll let you introduce our guest tonight, since you're the guy responsible for getting him on. Well, we have a super guest tonight. His name is uh, Jeffrey Jeffrey Wells. He's an author, historian, and a professor at the Georgia Military College. Uh, Jeff has a new book out. It's called Bigfoot in Georgia, and it mainly looks at a history of sightings and the current state of the hunt of Bigfoot in the Peach State. Uh, his book covers uh, Bigfoot sightings in Georgia, includes regional Native American tales, some early newspaper accounts, and other stories up to the present day. And uh, without any further ado, I'd like to welcome you aboard. Jeff, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you guys for having me. It's quite an honor to have been asked. Well, welcome, Jeff. Good welcome. Thank and, you. Uh, first, if, if you could, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? You're uh, you're a professor at the Georgia Military College. Yeah, I um, I teach uh, American and world history and Georgia history and at a community college in the Metro Atlanta area, and um, I've been a classroom teacher for the last 14 years, and the last five of which have been in the college classroom. I'm a native Georgian. My family's been here, I, I think, about 10 to 11 generations, so quite some time. And I grew up in Georgia, in rural South Georgia, um, graduated from the University of Georgia with a bachelor's degree in history and uh, graduated from Georgia College and State University in the middle part of the state, which is a liberal arts university, with a master's degree in American history and currently working on, uh, you know, doctoral studies. But right now I am uh, I am also serving as the chair of the social and behavioral sciences division for the college. This will be my uh, August will start my third year uh, as the head of that division. I um I've got, I think, three books out. One is, uh, to the first two, actually, were um, this book, Bigfoot in Georgia, was the first one I started writing. But it took mm -hmm. me so long to get it together and get it published. Um, 
that the other two came out before, even though they were started after. And um, one was uh, is actually um, published through the History Press, which is out of Charleston, South Carolina, and Chicago, Illinois, and Salem, mm-hmm. Massachusetts, of all places. Um, and it's uh, called In Atlanta or in Hell, the Camp Creek Train Crash of 1900, which was about a really big, disastrous train crash here in the metro Atlanta area. And uh, the first one that was released was called Moments in McDonough History, which was a local history book about um, the area in which I live. My fourth book, Bigfoot was the third one, my fourth book will be released through the History Press, I think, this fall. And it's, uh, we haven't titled it yet. I'm in the process of finishing it up. But it's about the Atlanta Ripper murders, uh, which took place oh. from 1911 to 1915. So we're at the 100-year anniversary, actually, of those first killings. Wow. Wow. And also, I have a blog site. It's uh, over at Blogspot, which I think is the sister to Blog Talk Radio, I think. Uh (laughs) But uh, it's georgiamysteries.blogspot.com. Okay. Let me see if I can put that in the chat for our chat room listeners. Sure. So, Jeff, how did you get involved in the Bigfoot mystery? Well, uh,. Probably, I I think about eight years ago, I was teaching high school, and I was teaching high school down in the central part of the state, and I was in the English and writing departments back then. Um, And so one of the the curriculums, part of the curriculum, was teaching our students who were all college-bound how to be effective researchers and writers. And so I had written a curriculum and had used it for the past few years. And and one of the things that I had found in that curriculum was the best way to teach students how to write effective research papers was to make the topic something about which they were interested. And so I went into um, planning a curriculum on unsolved mysteries. Mm -hmm. And one of the young men in that class, this was a junior-senior level class, one of the young men in that class came to me and said, you know, I'd really like one of your topics is, you know, the mystery of of Bigfoot. And um, he said, I'd kind of like to narrow that down and pursue the mystery in the state of Georgia. And I told him this was, like I say, about eight years ago. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really know a whole lot about, I call it Sasquatch studies, the field of Sasquatch studies. I didn't, I didn't know very much about it at the time. And so I told him, I said, well, you know, this is a 10 to 15-page research paper. I said, you probably won't get past the first couple of pages with a topic like that. I said, you know, um, if this animal exists, it's going to exist in, you know, the Himalayas and the Pacific Northwest. I, I don't think there's any, any evidence of one living down this far south. Once again, I didn't know anything about the subject at that time, not mm-hmm. much. Other than what I'd read, you know, I'd seen the Patterson-Gimlin footage. I'd, I'd read a couple of books, you know, small books on Bigfoot, you know, when I was younger. And, and all, of the, all of the evidence, all of the research was primarily in the Pacific Northwest, California, Oregon, uh, British Columbia, uh, Washington State. And, you know, I had heard some stories about some things going on down in the Everglades in Florida, but never did I put that phenomenon in my own state. Well, this young man, I asked him, I said, you know, what has led you to this? And he, he said, well, <clears throat> you know, my father and family own a lot of land in central Georgia, and we have what is called a hunting club. And I'm pretty sure uh, Chris is yeah. from Kentucky. know what that is. Mm-hmm. I've, been, I've, been, well, I've, been, I've been down to Bama. I know what a hunting club is. <laughs> we'll, have to, we'll have to make sure our Yankee friend is kept up on what, a, you know, what we Southerners, you know, guard is. is oh, that's you know, right. That's right. Is, you know. Um, but at any rate, <laughs> he, uh, he told me, he said, you know, he said, <clears throat> in the past few years, he said, dad, mine, his dad was an insurance agent, was president of the Chamber of Commerce. These people were wealthy because this was a private school. These people were wealthy and extremely well known in the community. So, you know, it's not something that I felt like they were fooling around with. Not that wealthy or prestigious people can't fool around and tell stories or jokes, but these were not the kind of people who would jeopardize their their hunting club because what happened was this particular type of hunting club, if you were not a member, of course you had to pay dues. If you were not a member, you had to pay a, a hunting fee. 
Sure. And it was set up sort of as a business. And I thought, you know, the last thing this guy and his dad, and I knew his dad really well. I mean, he had my insurance, and so I trusted him. I said, the last thing that this guy and his father are going to try to do is jeopardize the business they have established in this area out in this community. And so so he began to talk to me about some of the things that some of the men who would come and women who would come there and, and hunt. They, you know, they had a lot of people who would come down from the Atlanta area. They had people as far away, he told me, as far away as, um, you know, north of Virginia. Uh, he had, they had a few New Englanders at one time. That were, This was a very popular place, and it was good prime hunting land. And so he said, you know, a couple of them had come out of the woods and said, look, guys, if you're going to charge this amount of money um, for us to go in and hunt this property, you really need to tell your pranksters and your, your these teenagers and these goofballs that are in the woods, you need to clear them out. And after a while, they began mm-hmm. to, you know, they began to engage that. And said, well, what are you talking about? And he told me one guy who was from the Atlanta area, and I have I've since met him and, and spoken with him about what he saw. And he said one guy was from Gwinnett County, which, as if anybody knows anything, your listeners know anything about Georgia, is the fastest-growing county in this state and one of the fastest in the country. This guy was a wealthy businessman up here, and he said, you know, look, he said, if you guys pull this stunt again, I'm just going to sue you. And uh, he said, you know, my dad, being you know a businessman and insurance agent, immediately jumped on that. So what are you talking about? He says, well, he said, I think your son was out there in a gorilla suit running around. And he said, you know, that's got its own problems as far as you know getting shot. He said, but you know, it's not really fair to your customers to be out there goofing off. And he said, you know, I just I, I feel betrayed, and uh, I don't feel like you were you were honest with me when you when you sold me this this rental pass to go in and hunt this property. Well, first thing they said is, guy, you got to be kidding me. Um, no one, the guy, you know, the young man, the teenager had he had basically an alibi for his whereabouts. And, you know, this man told um, the businessman who'd rented or bought a rental pass for the day, he said, nobody's on this pro- was on this property today except you and the people who were securing the property. You can't have someone out there hunting by themselves. You have mm-hmm. to have someone in the property, you know, for security. And he said, they, you know, gorilla suits. So after a while, they began to ask questions. And, you know, the young man told me, he said, I, th- there are sightings of Bigfoot in, in this area here. And, of course, that night as I was laying there thinking about that in my bedroom, I got up and checked the windows and the doors, you know. And I thought, <laughs> Bigfoot certainly has a way of making the hair on the back of your neck stand up, no matter if he's in your area or not. And so he turned in his paper, and I still got it here. I gave him an A+. plus. He had the minimum requirement was 10 to 15. He had about 25 pages. And they were all personal interviews. They were. This is when the BFRO had just launched its website, or right around that time. He had um, articles from the Gulf Coast Group. He had sightings from the people that on GeorgiaBigfoot.com. I mean, it was absolutely phenomenal. So um, I began to do my own research. And about 2006, or 2000, beginning of 2007, I'd been teaching at the college where I am about a year, and I was using that same technique to teach historical research. And one of my students said, Professor, you ought to write a book on this. You seem so interested in the topic. And I looked at him and I said, you know, you're right. So that's how the research began, and I had a room full of books. I had a room full of papers. I had interviewed everybody from here to Kingdom Come. I had emails from all over the place. And so uh, for about a year and a half to two years, it was like I was married to the big guy out in the woods. (laughs) Aren't we all used to hearing that? (laughs) (laughs) And Bigfoot in Georgia, at least the book, was born. There you go. Now, uh, we got a quick question from uh, from our chat room. This one comes from Steve Schroyfert. The uh, question is, is, uh, did uh, your Bigfoot... Uh, did your Bigfoot research get in the way of your academic reputation? It has not at this point, which um, the institution for which I teach and and have been with for a while now is a teaching institution, and they focus not on research, it, it, only in, in you know the capacity of research on effective teaching habits. And so they do not require us to publish. They do not require us to do... Um, content-specific research. They encourage it if we'd like to, but the the focus that we put on um, 
you know, of the focus that's put on our faculties, um, you know, research is educational pedagogy, you know, teaching techniques, uh, classroom management, how to be more effective communicators, um, how to encourage and motivate students. So, you know, and I and I really don't want to go any further in the academic world. I want to stay at the at the two year level at the community right. college level because of its focus. So I have had, you know, ironically enough, at my own institution, a great deal of support, a great deal of interest. Um, you know, there's a copy of my book in the library. Um, every so often, they do a, a fa- faculty publications table, and it's always right there at the front of that table with my other publications and publications that other professors have done. Um, so I'm going to have to say, a, you know, a resounding no. Uh, as a matter of fact, I've, I've gotten quite a bit of attention because of it. Um, now, if I were at a research-level institution, no, they wouldn't, they wouldn't recognize it nor fund it, which, of course, my institution didn't do that either. But they wouldn't recognize it and would probably tell me, like I'm sure Jeff Meldrum's been told, this is a diversion rather than a a supplement mm. to your academic career. But so far, no, I have not received any flag from it. Now, when I go to academic conferences, I do not include that on my CV for presentation because it's not really in my academic field. It is, right. It's really something I wrote for interest. It was something I wrote because it was personally enriching to me. Um, and it really doesn't have a whole lot to do with my field of research. So, but I have had a couple of professors from other institutions that would come up to me after presentations or conference meetings and say, "Hey, I got a copy of your book," and I would, you know, say which one, not thinking it would be Bigfoot in Georgia. And a couple of them have whipped out that book and said, "Would you autograph it?" And there I was in the middle of you know all these people autographing Bigfoot in Georgia. And so, um, delightfully, I have actually received, um, you know, positive attention. I'm sure some people have snickered and sneered, but you know what? I, you know, I don't care. My book's selling, and theirs probably isn't. But. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. <laughs> well, that, that is great, and I, I wish more uh, academic uh, institutions would have that view. But uh, it may be the difference, uh, like you were saying, Jeff, uh, with uh, Jeff Meldrum out there in Idaho. I think his uh, his field of research is uh, evolutionary uh, pathology or something of anthropology. The foot. Anthropology yeah. of the foot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that might be then that might be the difference. I don't know. But uh, well, as an academic, go, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say he has. You know, he's carved such a niche for himself. And that everybody that I, you know, and I'm, by the way, I interviewed him for the book, as you probably know mm-hmm. from looking through it. You know, I talked to him in, I believe it was January of 2009, maybe or 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I had like a two-hour phone interview with him, and he is just the consummate gentleman and academic. Mm-hmm. You know, he was, he was extremely professional, but he was easy to talk to. He was, you know, it was a very wonderful experience sitting down and going through this with him. Um, however, I am beginning to notice, not in the field of history, but I also think that historians have a place in Sasquatch studies because these are mm-hmm. historical creatures. And so, but Jeff Meldrum, as you know, as evidenced by the you know all the appearances that he's done, all of the guest speaking that he's done, and and you know that he is kind of he's one of the four horsemen, I believe, of modern Sasquatch research, but. Um, if you'll notice from the History Channel's the, the recent um, documentary, Bigfoot, the Defin- a Definitive Case, it's beginning yeah. to open up to more and more people. You know, I don't agree with a lot of the things that some of those other academics said, especially the ones who went into the shaman area. But, um, yeah. you know, I've done some research on those guys, too, as they come into the fold, and they're beginning to become a little bit more serious about Sasquatch research. So... I'd say 25 years from now, you're going to see more and more academic presentations on this, and a lot more books about it. Right. Sure. Yeah. Um, I... With, with your uh, with your research, uh, Jeff, what what do you think these creatures are? I mean, do you think that it's possible Gigantopithecus blackie or some form of prehistoric man? Just any opinion? Well, the first thing that I think they're not is the monsters that Hollywood has created them out to be. You know, and I, I'll be honest with you, I'm guilty of this too. If I see a good horror story that deals with Bigfoot, I, you know, I pick up those dime store science fiction novels too. And, you know, sci fi and, 
you know, some of these movie channels and stuff, they have these Sasquatch movies and things that, you know, and we all like to be frightened. We all like to be scared. But I'll be honest with you, you know, something as tiny as a, as a mouse frightens a lot of people. So you don't have to be eight foot and ki- covered with hair and have glowing eyes and hide out in the woods to be scary. But here, here's, here's, that's what I think they're not. I do not think they're the monsters that Hollywood has, has perpetuated, and I, and I really don't appreciate them continuing to do it now that we're getting closer and closer, although it can be a little bit of fun, and I'm guilty of that myself. But um, I'm going to be honest with you. The first chapter of my book after, and once again, now I'm not a scientist. I'm not an anthropologist. I'm just a, I'm an historian. I honestly believe that these are animals that have somehow gone unchronicled by science, they are part of the um, they are part of the animal kingdom. I believe that they are descendants or leftovers of Gigantopithecus blackie. Um, I do subscribe to the theory that they crossed the Bering Land Bridge. Um, you know, let me say this about the recent documentary: <clears throat> if you're if you're going to tell me that maybe some of what people see out there is a mistaken entity, in other words, they're really seeing. We all know people mistake bears for these things. Mm-hmm. We all know that that people mistake all ki- you know all kinds of things for for these things, but um, you know, are there mistaken identities as far possibly people you know uh, feral humans or, or shamans as Jack Rink wanted to say, maybe. Mm-hmm. But the first thing that Ian Redmond came back and said was that doesn't account for the sixteen inch footprint. You know, and here in Georgia, I can, you know, getting specific in Georgia, that theory wouldn't work because there are no, there are no dominant Native American tribes still practicing in the state. We had the Cherokee and the Creek for the most part, and some sub-tribes of those particular dominant tribal cultures. But they're not out there practicing shamanism today. Also, as far as I know, I don't think, anatomically speaking, that you can, just because you decide to become you know, a shaman or feral or you're going to live out in the wild or if you're going to be like the guy that, you know, into the woods who went off in pursuit of nature and lived up in Alaska and died up there, you don't immediately go from being, from having a 10-inch foot to a 16 or an 18-inch foot. And one of the biggest footprints, one of the biggest tracks that was ever found in in this country was found right here in Georgia, and it's the well-known Elkin Creek Cast. And I've got yeah. a whole mm-hmm. I'm just getting ready to ask you about that one. <laughs> yeah. I mean that you know, that involved Meldrum, that involved Jimmy Chilcutt, that involved Grover Krantz actually saw that thing. Um that involved law enforcement officers here and some innocent bystanders. And Jeff Meldrum told me, he said, you know, there are about seven or eight pieces of evidence that when all is said and done if you had issues with every piece of evidence we pulled trying to prove there's a North American grade A, he said there's about seven or eight that I just will totally stand beside and never leave. And he said one of those is the Elkins Free Cat. Now, no human could make that print. I'm sorry. No human. And if a human could make the print, I don't want to come on across this human anymore. I want to come across Bigfoot. So, <laughs> you know, um, but is it possible people are mistaking things out in the woods? Maybe there are feral humans that someone has seen. Uh, maybe there is uh, a, a native culture in the Pacific Northwest that still practices those kinds of things that someone has mistaken. Sure, but that doesn't account for the literally tens of thousands of reported sightings throughout history that go all across the globe. But I, I kind of think they are descendants of Gigantopithecus blackie. They're not monsters. I don't think they... You know, I really don't think they're anything to be as fearful of as we, as some, as some people would like to say they are. I think they should be respected for what they are, just like you respect the rattlesnakes. Um, you, you, you have to respect other human beings. If you bust down on a man's family, especially around in this area, you're going to get shot. That's what I think they are. Just, just ask. Just ask Chris about, you know, shooting in Kentucky. Oh. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I've been through there, well, too. We'll be on um, I got a question. Um, have you ever yourself done any field work? This is a question from Nancy from West Virginia. I have been invited 
uh, on a couple of them. Um, I, there was a, a gentleman that I did interview for the book that um, did take me to some places where there have been some sightings. I have seen some tracks, not in the dirt, but I've seen some ca- some plaster casts of tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll be honest with you, I and I tell, that's the first thing I admit when I talk to people. I am an historian. I am not right. a field researcher. I'm not a tracker. I don't know how I feel about actually doing that. I'll be honest with you. I don't sit still in one place for very long. And so um, my father tried to take me deer hunting one time, and he told me right in the middle of it, he said, if you don't sit still, I'm going to shoot you instead of the deer. That kind of reminds me of a story when I, you know, when I was a very young kid. When I was a very young kid, I, you know, I asked my father to take me to the zoo, and my father said, if they wanted me, they'll come and get me. But uh, <laughs> anyway, yeah, sorry to interrupt. Oh. I just... Yeah, you know, I had a throw in a cheap pop there, and you can all boo me now in the chat room. <laughs> well, Jeff, you brought up the Elkins Creek cast, and uh, yeah. that was that was one of my questions I was going to. Um, for our listeners that don't know anything about the, the Elk, Elkins Creek, uh, Georgia incident, can you tell us a little bit about that incident? Yeah. Um, Elkins Creek is a tributary of the Flint River. And the Flint River happens to be one of the most, um, you know, well-known and vital rivers, not the most, but one of the well-known, most well-known and vital rivers here in in Georgia. And uh, there's a county about an hour, maybe an hour and 15 minutes south of metro Atlanta or of, of downtown Atlanta. The name of the county is Pike County, and it was named for the explorer Zebulon Pike. And the county seat there is actually beautiful little town called Zebulon. And uh, there was an elderly man who lived in uh, a small place right off of Elkins Creek. And, you know, my research, by the time the book actually um, was published and I was doing the research for the book, this gentleman had had passed on and had been dead for a couple of years. His wife at that time was in a uh, retirement home in that area. I, I, I never have spoken with her nor know her name or if she's still alive. But they lived uh, together, husband and wife, on right off Elkins Creek. And this was back in the early 90s. The phenomenon, the interesting part of this, is that they began to be pretty much terrorized by something, some animal, that would come in in the middle of the night and hit his fist on the side of their, their home, uh, would follow them. He, you know, these footsteps were pretty heavy. The man, the older man would get up and look out the windows and, you know, whatever it was, he said, he told the sheriff's deputy that researched this case, he said, you know, I could hear it following me every step I took in the house. It took outside in the yard. Um, after a while, he said it at one point it even stood next to the window and would blow at the window, you know, trying to spook and scare uh, him and his wife. And it got so bad that his wife finally told him, you know, if you can't take care of this problem and, and, and do something about it, I'm going to pack my stuff up and leave. So he had to do something. Um, it got to a point where uh, it killed a couple of his dogs. Um, there was a tractor tire that was thrown into a tree and, and was on a couple of the heavier limbs near the top of the tree. That is no small feat. Wow. Um, yeah, those things are heavy. Yeah, dog food, bags of dog food and corn were ripped open and consumed in one sitting. Um, other farm animals nearby had been, uh, had been, had gone missing. And so the old man began to actually try to track this animal and find out what it was. And, and so he found prints. Well, he would call in to the Pike County Sheriff's Department quite a bit. And the old man had sort of a reputation of being not one of, uh, not one of those, um, guys that you really want to talk to a lot because he had a very negative attitude and could rub you the wrong way. Um, At any rate, um, eventually the deputy sheriff that I wrote about in the book, James Aiken, uh, he was talking to some people in town, in a nearby town, and, uh, no, I'm sorry, um, James Aiken, the deputy sheriff, was sent out to investigate the the disturbances, and he just kind of point blank, he said, what do you think is doing this? And the old man took him out to, on Elkins Creek, and they found prints. Um, right. And they took plaster casts and so forth. And 
James Aiken basically said as he was out there taking those plaster casts, he became frightened. You know, he started looking around to make sure that whatever this thing was wasn't still in the area. But right. um, uh, it, this thing rocked on for a little while, and James Aiken began to talk about what he discovered. And so uh, in a small town nearby, uh, Mr. Aiken was talking to some hunters and some people who were Bigfoot uh, enthusiasts and, and researchers, and they wanted to take a look at what he had. And so it kind of spread from there. Um, and a guy by the name of Steve Hyde, who runs the GeorgiaBigfoot.com site, um, he got involved, and uh, he, of course, knew about Jeff Meldrum's research. He knew about all of the, uh, you know, the big names in, in Sasquatch studies. And, and before this thing died, um, it made its way to Jimmy Chilcott, the, the fingerprint expert. It made its way to Dr. Jeff Meldrum. Dr. Grover Krantz saw this thing amongst another, you know, another group of people and, and multitudes of people that examined the, the footprint. Um, here's what the experts say was happening. Um, this this animal, this creature, um, by the examination of the print, was losing fat on the bottom of its foot. And scientists tell us that that's, that's evidence of, of starvation or being hungry, um, which I guess there's very yeah. little difference between the two. <laughs> um, and they thought, these, you know, I think Meldrum basically told me, it's been a while, like I say, since I've read through that chapter in the book, that um, Meldrum basically confirmed to me that he thought that this was an older species, a very, an older Sasquatch male, and the reason that he had been attacking like that and the reason that he had been coming into that area was he was, he was hungry and was looking for food. And um, the old man actually, some people had thought that there, were, there was actually moonshine activity nearby on Elkins Creek, and the local sheriff's department thought that some of these young guys was running moonshine, were just doing these things to try to scare the old man, but... When the experts got a hold of this print, this this was not a hoax in their opinion, and um, it just kind of exploded from there. And as I say in the book, it is the crown jewel of Georgia Sasquatch studies. Well, I you know I I know one thing: the man must have really loved his wife after all those years. I mean, if it was if it was my ex-wife, said you know, I I would have opened up the door and invited Mister Squatchy in the door. I said, okay, fine. <laughs> yeah, but I, I I have a little question off the uh, the Elkins cast, uh, but is that uh, as a historian, uh, this is a question I I I'd like to pose to you. It seems that you know since you know the eighteen the mid eighteen hundreds especially. Um, the sightings of a Sasquatch or a wild man or a, uh, a bear man or all these other, you know, innuendos meaning Sasquatch were always, you know, big news. Now, it seems like since the early 90s, uh, the media has kind of turned it into a joke and digressed. You know, do you have yeah. any particular thoughts on why that may be? Well, you know, honestly, with after the 1950s and, you know, the word Bigfoot became sort of a household term and the country became familiar with the phenomenon of the Sasquatch, that is going to coincide a little bit with the what Alvin and Heidi Toffler write about in their book, The Politics of the Third Wave, as, as the third wave, which is the information and technological revolution. Um, the Topplers argue that there are three phases of human civilization. There's the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution, and then the technological and information uh, revolution and, and information superhighway, which we're in right now. Um, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, um, you start seeing more and more multimedia. People have more and more access to information. And then, of course, in the 90s and the turn of the century here, in the millennium, that just explodes with the Internet, you know, laptops, uh, cell phone technology. But along with that good thing, um, the, the very fact that you and I are having this conversation from, what, Kentucky, New York, and Georgia, if I'm not mistaken, right. um, that's a good thing. But the bad thing is that as people begin to understand, of course, after the Patterson and Gimlin footage, you know, that becomes, um, you know, sort of the, the red flag, not the red flag, but the uh, flagship of Sasquatch research, or that is the crown jewel. Most people uh, can identify, you know, if you say Bigfoot, what's the biggest piece of evidence for Bigfoot? Most people say, well, that film, you know, and they're talking about Roger Patterson and, and Bob Gimlin's footage. 
that's going to coincide with this information and technological superhighway. And so people now have more opportunities and greater access to tools that allow them to perpetrate hoaxes. Um, and if you take a search, if you do a search, what I call a U-search, a YouTube search, if you go to the search engine on YouTube and you type in Bigfoot, you're going to get more stupid videos and, and idiots out there with cameras and so forth trying to pretend that they've seen these things or that they've had these encounters, then you're going to get legitimate footage. And so I think with the proliferation of that, the media, and, and once again, we have to understand that the media is, they're, they're there to sell. They're, they're there to sell uh, subscriptions, newspapers. Of course, they're there to, to be able to boost their Nielsen ratings, uh, people tuning in, people dialing in, what have you. And so some institutions, some media establishments feel like they lose credibility if they give this any serious attention. And so that, with the fact that people now are able to perpetrate uh, perpetrate hoaxes and the technologies there at their fingertips to do this, um, that all has coincided and has made the field of Sasquatch studies much more difficult. Right. And, uh, Jeff, in your, in your book, I understand you include some early newspaper accounts, or do you discuss some? Uh, is there one in particular that stands out in your mind that was particularly interesting or, or yeah. particularly yeah. old. <laughs> one that I one that I included. In, I, I'm not even, I'm not even sure if I included it in the book. Now, it's like I say, it's been I, the distance between today and the time I actually wrote it. You know, it, I understand. And then the time that I wrote it and actually the book came out. Some of the chapters I'd written a couple of years before it was even published. But there was one in 1815 up in the North Georgia mountains that. Yeah. I don't know what these people were seeing. It looked like he was blue-haired and had long ears, and I don't know. It sort of sounded like a, a donkey squatch, you know. <laughs> but that one was um, I, that one was kind of odd. But the one that is the you know, like I say, the Elkins Creek one is the crown jewel of Georgia Sasquatch studies. But the historical piece that is the crown jewel is the 1829 Okie Finoki Swamp encounter. This one actually made it on Monster Quest when they were doing the um, the swamp. Oh, was yeah. the swamp aid. Yeah, right. They went to Louisiana, Florida, and a couple of other places. Um, this one actually is a Georgia, Florida sighting. Uh, the Okefenokee is a humongous swamp down in the extreme southern portion of Georgia on the Florida line. Uh, in a small Florida town, there was some talk about, you know, this forest giant, this swamp giant. And right. there were some people who had gone in and done some research that didn't fare too well, had been scared out of there. So this group, uh, in 1829, went into the swamp. And from what I understand, they were actually on the Georgia side of the border. And so, and keep in mind now, we don't take full possession of uh, Florida until after 1819 with the uh, treaty, uh, Transcontinental Treaty. So, you know, secure Florida settlements inside the United States were less than a decade old. People are still quite nervous living in that part of Florida. So um, they went into the swamp, and only, I think, two or three of them made it out alive. They encountered this creature. They shot at it. We're in there for a while before they found him. Um, this thing wreaked havoc. Um, they finally killed it. I don't understand why they didn't take the time to... You know, dra well, yeah, I do. Ta I do think I understand why they didn't take the time to drag the body out. But only a couple of them made it out alive, and right. that newspaper report um, was in the Milledgeville newspaper in 1829. And the significance of the Mil of, of Milledgeville is it was the state capital of Georgia at that time. And most hmm. of what made into that newspaper was going to be very serious news. And um, this one was the oldest spookiest one that I found, and, you know, it's made its way into a lot of different sources. I think Chad Armant used it in uh, the Historical Bigfoot. It was on Monster Quest, but I had had a copy of that. It was one of the first ones I got a hold of before I read or saw any of those sources. Um, that one is kind of freaky. That, that one scared me a good bit. As a matter of fact, the day the book came out that I got the advanced copy, it was uh, mm -hmm. it was December of 2009. Now they didn't release it until January of 2010. But I I went ahead and uh, the UPS guy delivered late that evening or late that afternoon, and I 
when I got them, finally got to reading the book, I was sitting in my home office, and, you know, I wrote the book, so I know what's in it. <laughs> you know, right. nothing could have been a surprise. Or, but as I'm sitting there, I said, well, I'm going to read this thing from cover to cover. I, I didn't go to bed until like 3 o'clock that morning, but about midnight to 1 o'clock, I was kind of scared. <laughs> you know, I was I was reading my own book, getting spooked by it. And the one story that started it was that Okie Finoki 1829 encounter. And um, right. there were windows in my uh, home office at that time. Uh, and I, I got up and pulled the blinds and the curtains. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's funny, one of my favorite said, ones. Yeah, and I said, this is my own book here. Why am I getting spooked out? But I guess that's just the way Bigfoot, you know, that's the effect he has Hey, uh, uh, Jeff, just to let you know, uh, the, the ranger in your book is in the chat room listening in on the show. We wanted to do a quick shout-out to you and say hello. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that um, that he's here. Um, I'm in the chat room if he wants to. Uh, I guess you can private message one another, right? Absolutely. If you just uh, want to throw him your... Uh, your name, it's uh, Ditch Doctor is his name. So if you want oh, to just okay. look. So. Yeah, I, uh, I'm i history prof. <laughs> yeah, that, that Okie Finoki sighting uh, news story from the 1800s was one of my all-time favorites to come out of Georgia. I love that. And it, quite it obviously, was, the, go ahead. It, I was going to say, it, it's absolutely um, one of the one of the most, talked about ones in, in Georgia Sasquatch studies as far as the history of the phenomenon in the state. Right. Right. And uh, obviously that creature was attacked at some point. I mean, when they did the remake of it, they had those guys firing off black powdered pistols and rifles and anything else they could get a hold of. But uh, do you think uh, if the creatures are not attacked, uh, do you think they're they're nonviolent, basically, or you think they're violent? Well, once again, I'm going to have to base my comments on on history, on what I've seen historically from the historical record. We have to understand that any animal, any species out there that feels threatened is going to be um, is is definitely going to be aggressive. When it feels that it is it's it's being threatened, you know I think the three of us the the, the three men in this conversation right here would we yeah. all three of us would defend our homes um, absolutely yep. so I think that that's certainly a possibility from the historical record in Georgia, I have read some accounts that make me believe that one of the things that we're doing to the animal in the state of Georgia is we are encroaching somewhat on its territory. Um, a lot of the sightings, a lot of the historical record shows us that Sasquatch in Georgia, if he doesn't live anywhere in the state, he lives in the North Georgia mountains. You know. Um, but from my from my perspective, from what I've seen, there are three very big places for Bigfoot activity in the state of Georgia. One is the North Georgia Mountains. One is going to be uh, the Altamaha River Basin, and I have on my blog site a recent blog post or blog article about this. The other one um, is in the southwest Georgia area where there are, um, you know, the Flint River, uh, and a couple of other tributaries, that's, you know, like I say, that's what Pike, uh, the Elkins Creek is a tributary of. Of course, that's closer up to the Atlanta area, but Flint River's huge. Right. Um, there have been some, there have been some encounters in those areas where the animal has been aggressive. However, if you take all of the sightings from the state of Georgia, those that I've read, um, those are just a handful. Those are just a few examples, reported examples, of this animal becoming aggressive. I feel like, after all I've read, seen, and, and heard, and discussed, and, and researched, I don't think these animals will hurt us as long as they do not feel threatened by us. I will tell you a quick story, and I know we're, we're getting close to the end of the show here, and I hate that. But I will tell you, I'll tell you a quick story. Um 
there was a group of Sasquatch researchers down. Well, no, not research. They're, they're, they were they were hunters. They were wealthy men who owned some prime territory and property down in Effingham County. And uh, they wanted, they had bought that land to make a hunting club. Not the guy that I was talking about earlier, but uh, same situation. And lo and behold, there was, a, there was a resident on their property that was making it quite difficult. And I kind of think that they were also um, feeding deer, and you're not supposed to do that. Um, they, I think there were some um, things they were doing to attract uh, certain types of wildlife on their property that they weren't supposed to be doing. But one of the things they did not account for was that the big guy lived on that property. And uh, they brought in some uh, researchers and some trackers and some people to try to rid themselves of their their neighbor. These people, I do not know their names. I do not know specifically in Effingham County where they are. Um, a, a, an acquaintance of mine who knew I was doing this book actually knew one of their associates and mentioned it to them, and they contacted me through an email address that's no longer valid. Um, they said in email, we will call you. We have your cell phone number. We'll call you, and they called from a private number. Um, they went out in the woods, and they were going to attack the big guy, and they were going to run him off their property bring him out dead or alive. They were walking. They tried to do this. I, I just kind of was giggling, you know, in my mind, thinking, I hope you, you really didn't do what I think you did. But they took their uh, their hardware out into the uh, the forest, and he met them on a trail. I don't know oh. if it was coincidental, but I'll, I'll say this. They went ahead and did their hunting club, but they didn't get rid of their neighbor. He showed them that he was going to stick around. <laughs> but there was an interesting, interesting thing that he did, that, that one of them did. One of the researchers, as they were standing there in front of the Sasquatch, and the guy that talked to me on the phone said this was the most, this was the most ferocious-looking thing I'd ever seen in my life. But one of the researchers immediately said, drop your weapon. Uh, <laughs> he, he hasn't seen my ex-mother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> but the guy calls out, realizes, says, drop your weapons, get down on your knees, lower your heads like you're praying. And they did that. And this thing raised hell with them for about four or five minutes, screaming at the top of its lung, blowing at them, you know, uh, grunting at them, basically showing them, I've got you where I want you, not the other way around. It left. It, it went off. They got up and gathered their material and left the area because they realized they were up against an enemy that, that they would just, they weren't smarter than this thing, and, and they weren't going to overcome it physically. But um, the researcher, the, the guys asked, you know, why did you, why did you tell us to do this? And the researcher said, well, number one, as you can see, it works. But secondly... The kneeling position is a position that they have learned over time is a non-aggressive position for humans. And, you know, and I told him, I said, well, I can understand the praying thing. Praying is something, I mean, especially, you know, that's a very docile position, a very humble position, and that's, I don't think there was any, you know, possibility of, of attack at that point, although, I mean, well, I guess there could have been. But, um... I told the guy, I said, they're so smart, they know our technology. Your hardware was the threat. You weren't the threat. Your hardware was the threat. Um, and so um, that's an example of, of why this animal behaved the way it did. It felt attacked. It felt threatened. You were encroaching on its territory. It wasn't encroaching on yours. So the examples of where there has been, uh, you know, Violent interaction is is because these things have felt threatened. Um, and I, will we win? You know, if you go one on one, no. You might as well take on the Green Bay Packers. I mean, you know. <laughs> hey, uh, Jeff, I'm going to jump in real quick with a question here. Uh huh. Um, this one again is from Nancy, and let me just back it up here to get the question out of the chat. And the question is, uh, did the did you credit the student who told you to write the book or dedicate any of the books to him? He didn't want any mention whatsoever of his name or anything. He, right. he, he said I could talk about it but not put it in print. <laughs> well, there you go, Nancy. There's your question. <laughs> yeah. He, uh, I 
still I have contact with him, and uh, as a matter of fact, within the last four or five months, uh, I, I actually visited the area where I taught and, and ran up on him, and uh, he said, well, I saw your book. He said, I appreciate you not, you know, mentioning it. He said, you can talk about it. He said, but in print, someone might be able to figure it out. And he said, you know, I don't want any, because he said, you know, we still have that place. And he said, I don't want anyone doing things they ought not to do. And um, so he, he just, he said, you can tell my story, but don't put it in print. Right. Well, look where we are at for time, Mr. B. We are mm-hmm. at the end, and uh Jeff, I want to thank you for coming on. It has been a very quick hour. And, it has. Uh, very, very, uh, very informative, entertaining at the same time, and I loved every second of it. It's kind of something, uh, it's a different perspective we don't always get to see, and, uh, you know, and that from a historian's perspective. And I think that it does put a lot of things in perspective, and uh, just some of the stories that you've researched are just amazing. So I want to thank you. Chris, final words. Yeah. yeah. Thank uh, you, thanks, Jeff. And I, I was wondering if there's any way you could tell our, our listeners how to get a hold of your book. Yes. Uh, yeah, they're, um, they are available through Amazon.com. I, I don't think they're available through all of the uh, online, large online booksellers. But the publisher is Pine Winds Press, which is a, okay. um, a subsidiary of Idle Arbor uh, Publishers. But Pine Winds Press out of, uh, I believe it's in, in Umclaw, Washington, which is a suburb of Seattle. And Mr. Tom Blashko is the publisher. But if you go to Amazon.com and um, type in Bigfoot in Georgia, you should hit it. Or if you go to Pine Winds Press, their website, and that's just pine as in the tree and winds as in W-I-N-D-S, uh, mm-hmm. there's, a cop- there are, there's a link there. Um, and I'd like to say, you know, I'd love to have the feedback. There's a Facebook page, uh, Bigfoot in Georgia. Um, I'd love to have people comment on different things there. So those are the ways you can find out more about the book. Excellent. Thank you. Well, Thank you so much. Jeff, thanks so much for being on. We'll, we'll have you on again sometime. Uh, give us a few months. We'll get you back on. That was awesome. And um, Thank you. And, uh, folks, uh, just a, a quick program note or two uh, that I'll be appearing on the Para Challenge radio program on Jackalope Radio on uh, March 1st. That's this Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern. So uh, I'll be in the hot seat for an hour there. And uh, next week's show, and uh, uh, another one that, that Chris set up a while back, and it's been a few months, and uh, we're going to have on Adam Pittman. And, Chris, who is Adam Pittman? Uh, he is the Bigfoot movie guy. Uh, he's got a big movie called Paper Dolls, and it's a really cool show. Yeah, it's looking really good. But he'll be on next week to talk about some of the stuff and how he went about doing the show, and he may even have some of the cast members on, too, from what I recall. So Writer, producer, director, see the whole nine yards, yeah. Yep. So it should, should be a good time next week. As for us, uh, well, we closed out another show, and... Uh, Hey, you know what? We'll see you all in March. And you know what happens in March, Chris? Spring. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> all right, folks. On behalf of us all here at Squatch Detective Radio, we want to wish everybody a great week, safe week, and God bless. And we'll catch you all next week, Sunday, 8 p.m. Eastern, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Squatch Detective or squatchdetectiveradio.com. We'll catch you all next week. Confusion